1: Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe?
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week we focus on one of the big events of the global political calendar, the Munich Security Conference, which took place last weekend. It's basically the foreign policy gathering. World leaders, ministers, lawmakers, diplomats, military chiefs, all getting together for a frenzy of speeches, panels, and networking in a luxury hotel in the heart of Bavaria. Above all, the conference provides a temperature reading of the transatlantic relationship. The current temperature, it has to be said, is ice cold. Listen for the next response, or rather, non-response, which followed this message from US Vice President Mike Pence.
3: I bring greetings from the 45th President of the United States of America, President Donald Trump. Last August.
0: Coming up in today's podcast, we'll hear from both sides of the Atlantic, from Rick Grinnell, the outspoken U.S. ambassador to Berlin, and Slovakia's veteran foreign minister, Miroslav Lachak. But first, I spoke to one of our reporters who covered the conference, Chief Brussels Correspondent David Herzenhorn. So, we're going to start the podcast today by speaking to David Herzenhorn, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent, who spent the weekend at the Munich Security Conference. We saw a lot of fairly nervous and negative headlines emerge from that event. David, what was it actually like in the conference hall?
3: It was tense. These were world leaders, influencers, power brokers who are confronting an array of threats, some new, some reemerging, like from nuclear weapons, and they really don't know what to do. So there was a feeling of a much more dangerous world with a lot less dialogue, as Anna Palacio, the former president, Foreign Minister of Spain told me people weren't talking to each other, they weren't talking at each other, they were actually talking through each other. Now,
0: Angela Merkel, obviously it's a hometown crowd, but there are huge criticisms about the performance of the German armed forces their contribution to NATO. How was she received, and how does that compare to some of the other standout moments and performances?
3: Merkel gave what was received as a really well-given, terrific speech. Even Germans in attendance, who might be tougher on their leader than others would be, thought she gave a really open, forthright talk, not mincing words also well-received by the foreigners in attendance who think this could have been perhaps the last speech that she gives to the Munich Security Conference as chancellor. It was a stark contrast, really, uh, analysts were saying, a dramatic contrast between her and Mike Pence, given her sort of internationalism, her willingness to stand up for what she believes in, for example, continuing dialogue with Russia and even uh, standing up for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline project, which Germany supports and many others, including the U.S., oppose. Pence... I saw somebody count up that he mentioned Trump by name 30 times in that speech. You can imagine for Europeans that didn't go over exceedingly well. A lot of skepticism there.
0: You've got an audience of one, David. You've
3: got to amp it up. But it was not a very well-regarded speech. It came off of this conference that was organized in Warsaw where the U.S. was trying to isolate Iran and where Pence demanded that the Europeans abandon the nuclear agreement with Iran, the JCPOA. They've said once, they've said again, they will not do that. But he repeated it again in Munich. Meanwhile, the Iranian foreign minister, uh, Zarif, gave one of the more dynamic performances in Munich, a very engaging, combative, feisty talk. And In Zarif's case, he's asking the Europeans to stick with the JCPOA, and of course, not for the reasons he necessarily wants, but they're going to do that, so it will present And then
0: some, he wants the Europeans to give even more, basically.
3: No, he had one of the better lines uh, saying, you know, if the Europeans want to swim against the tide of American unilateralism, then they better be prepared to get wet. He spoke in very fluent and conversational and colloquial English, at one point, you know, even making up words, asking the Europeans to think about what they would do if Trump started to dictate to them their policy on China, if he said his fight with China, they should stop doing business in China. You know, what will you do? He said, whatever you would do then, do it now, because a bully will only get bullier. Uh, Not quite a word, but the point got across. Uh,
0: We'll take it. It's an informal podcast. David Hosenhorn, thanks so much for joining us on EU Confidential. (music) Now let's hear our interviews from the conference, both conducted by our chief Europe correspondent, Matt Kinnitschnik. First up, the U.S. ambassador to Germany, Rick Grinnell.
2: It's been a pretty eventful couple of days. Maybe we just start there, Ambassador. What is your view of the last couple of days? You've had the largest American delegation here in the history, in the 55-year history of the conference. What do you think the impact has been over the last 48 hours here? First of all, we were so excited to have the largest
1: delegation, 91 U.S. officials, more than 50 members of Congress. It just sends such a strong Signal to have this bipartisan support. I mean, to have Speaker Pelosi here, to have the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to have Lindsey Graham, um, to have Bob Menendez, this really sends a very strong message. I think that U.S. officials are united around Nord Stream 2, for instance, for raising defense spending levels to the NATO commitments of 2%. All of those issues, when a bipartisan group comes over and pushes those points and those messages in all of their bilats, in all of their meetings. They met with foreign minister of Germany. They've met with heads of state from many different countries. To have that message permeate from a bipartisan group of messengers is unbelievably important. And so I was
2: just pleased over the last 48 hours that we got so much help on the U.S. messaging. At the same time, there was a pretty clear divide on some issues. I think a lot of people down in the conference hall yesterday were struck by the contrast between Angela Merkel's speech, where she called for more multilateralism and really kind of laid out her view of the situation with Iran, for example, and that was followed by Vice President Pence coming and, you know, articulating a very different view, uh, the sort of... Trump America first view, the demands on the Europeans to do more at NATO, the very deep concerns the U.S. has about Iran and its intentions regarding Israel. Talking to people around here, it does seem that the divide there between the U.S. and the Europeans is pretty substantial.
1: Well, first of all, let's remember who's here. This is the crowd that works seven days a week around these issues. So this is going to be the most potent divide because What you've done with the Munich Security Conference is attract people who work and whose livelihood are all about transatlantic issues. And they are paid to look for ways in which we disagree and to push their point. So I think this is just a bubble crowd that is missing a key important point and piece of this, which is the people and and how do the people see. So let's talk about that for a second. First of all, go back to my point about Nord Stream 2 and about defense spending, I thought that Chancellor Merkel gave a speech that was largely talking about why they weren't spending their 2% commitment to NATO, why they wanted to ignore the European Parliament in 16 countries who have called for the end of Nord Stream 2. She laid out her case of why they were not following the multilateral push, on those two issues. So I think, you know, we all view multilateral issues in a different way. But I think Chancellor Merkel laid out why they were pushing the policies that they were. And my response back is, that's not being a great multilateralist, when you ignore the NATO demand, it's not the US demand, it's the NATO demand of 2% spending of your GDP and by 2024, for military spending. And so I think that we view these issues differently, but make no mistake, what I try to say every day is one of the reasons why we're asking the Germans, for instance, to increase their defense spending is because we trust them. We like them. We like working side by side with them. We're not asking Russia and China to build up their militaries. We're asking our friends, the Germans. So I think we've got to remember the context of why we're taking different tactics But at the end of the day, I think we had a direct, unified message from the Americans on both sides of the aisle here on two of the most important issues for Europe right now, which is increased defense spending. And trying to stop Nord Stream 2, which is, by the way, of the points that I've been hearing across the board from U.S. officials on Nord Stream, I think make a lot of sense. One, we're standing with the 16 countries that have voiced opposition to Nord Stream, 16 European countries. And we're not opposed to Nord Stream 1 and some Russian gas. We think the diversification of energy arguments for Europe are super important. We had this desire to see Europe diversify its energy sources before we could sell LNG. So the Americans have been very consistent on our concern for too much Russian gas. Nord Stream 1, the Americans don't have a problem with. The Europe diversification Portfolio includes some Russian gas. We're not opposed. We're not saying no Russian gas. We're saying that Nord Stream 2 goes too far and it increases the pressure, the influence from Russia at a time when we should be doing the opposite. Let's look at what the Russian aggression has done recently. We still have 24 Ukrainian sailors in a Russian prison being held hostage. It's day 84. And this should be unacceptable. What we've seen on European soil is the Russians grab land. They've annexed land. They've shot down a passenger plane on European soil. We've seen them use chemical weapons against their enemies, their opponents. We have some very deep concerns about the increased behavior, malign activity from Russia. And that was another unifying message from Americans. I heard it from, from multiple U.S. officials, senators, and congressmen from both sides of the aisle talking about their concern with Russian malign activity. Now's not the time to give Russia more power, more money
2: through Nord Stream 2 when at this point they're demonstrating that they don't have very good behavior. And yet, at the same time, it seems like the Germans are showing no sign of backing away from Nord Stream 2. The (coughs) pipeline is being constructed as we speak, and I think it'll be finished by the end of the year, within some months in any case. Do you think it's realistic to think that it can be stopped at this stage, despite the resistance, not just from the United States, as you say, but... From really most of Europe. I think this is it's often confused with some of the transatlantic tensions because this isn't really a transatlantic issue with Europe. It's more of a German issue with its European allies and with the United States. And yet, as I say, I mean they have shown no willingness to back away with it. And Merkel made that clear. Look, it certainly
1: is the German decision, working with their European partners. I disagree that we don't see signs of concern, a rise in concern over Nord Stream two. I think we've seen the public and members of the Bundestag and even members of German leadership all having an increased consternation about Nord Stream 2. There are calls to rethink. There's calls to, to think about what this does. There are people saying it's not too late. I think the, at the minimum, the debate has been fundamentally changed from where it was. It is up to the Germans to decide this. I think their European partners and the Americans and others get to voice our concerns, and we get to raise them, and the Germans continue to use that information or dismiss it, and they get to decide what to do. But I think that what happened last week in in Brussels is a change. We certainly saw the Germans say that they now need to adjust to the decision in Brussels. So I think things are... You're referring to the agreement between Germany and France over the... uh, Well, it's it's
2: it's more than just
1: Germany and France. It's the larger European partners.
2: One of the things that I keep hearing here and have heard elsewhere is the change in tone between Washington and the Europeans during the Trump administration. You're known, obviously, to be somebody who's quite blunt and direct. And I think we heard that yesterday from... Vice President Pence, whose speech, I think, to a lot of European ears here was somewhat jarring because he was also very direct. How important do you think this is, this style versus substance here?
1: I leave it to political commentators to kind of evaluate what style versus substance, but let me just say one thing. A well-known Obama official yesterday came up to me and said, you know, I just want you to know that most of the issues that you're pushing Nord Stream 2, defense spending, some other issues are exactly the positions of the Obama administration. We were trying to push these issues here in Berlin and in Germany, and we have the same positions on many of these. And there's progress being made now. No one can deny that. So I let others kind of figure out what style works and what doesn't. I'm, you know, I try to be, you know me, I try to be blunt, but I'm also somebody who loves Germany and cares very deeply about this relationship, I don't want to ignore it. I think that the Europeans are wildly important to what the U.S. wants to do. We view the world largely the same way, even when it comes to Iran. I mean, you've heard me say this, I say this constantly, and I believe this. If you look at the E3 statement, after we, the United States got out of the JCPOA, and they clearly were not happy about that tactic. But in their statement, they talk about how we view Iran in the same way. We we have the same goals. We're concerned about ballistic missile technology. We want to deny Iran a nuclear weapon. We're concerned about the rise of malign activity. And that's happening in Europe. If you think about this, the Germans have led Europe by taking a step back and saying we can't have Mahan Air the Iranian airline coming into German airspace. That's a huge decision that didn't get enough media attention. I think we've seen other moments where the Germans have become very concerned about the rise of Iranian malign activity. I mean, it was the Germans who arrested this phony diplomat from Iran, who based in Vienna, who was planning an attack in Paris. And we could be sitting here talking about a terrible attack that took place in Paris, and who knows how many people would have been killed. But we stopped that, and the Germans were out front on helping figure out that this Iran malign activity in Europe was on the rise. And and we're working on some other issues, too, when it comes to Iran. So we clearly see the world in many ways the same. We have different tactics. I don't want to gloss over the fact that they want us to stay in the JCPOA. They think that by staying in the JCPOA, we can do more. My only point in that is that when early in the Trump administration, when we were talking about reforming the JCPOA, when we had a team with the Europeans trying to figure out how to improve it, how do you fix it. There was an admission from all of the Europeans that it needed to be fixed. There was an admission that the current agreement had holes. They came up with some ways of how we think that we can strengthen it. Our position was that they weren't strengthening it enough and that it was just going to give us the same leaky agreement and um, they didn't go far enough but my point is is that they know that the current agreement has flaws and so we have the same goal we have different tactics and so i try to speak very bluntly about that because frankly we don't have time to waste we wanna get to the
2: to the conclusions as quickly as possible so just one final question on the conference, on your experience here. You've been here many times before. What do you think the conference really achieves at the end of the day? I mean, these people are in constant contact anyway. They convene here over a weekend. As you say, it is very hectic, and you know, you're know you getting sort of mixed messages. There are some disputes going on here. Is this real progress? Absolutely. I'm
1: gonna give you one example, which is probably multiplied by a 1,000 when you think of all the other people that are here, but this is just one example. Vice President Mike Pence flew here and in a matter of two days met with the head of state from Afghanistan, from Ukraine, from Germany, NATO Secretary General. Uh, I think he had a couple more bilats. I mean, you're able to just do a whole bunch of meetings and coordinating. And a couple of ideas came out of each one, and we were able to talk to the next person about it. And I think that it sped up diplomacy just because we're all in the same place.
0: Next up, a European view from Slovakia's foreign minister, Miroslav Lacek. He speaks about Iran, European unity, and Europe's rule of law problems.
2: It's been quite a tumultuous conference in many people's views. Maybe we could just start with that, minister. What is your view of how things have gone so far at Munich this year?
4: Well, this year's conference has proven the importance of this event. It brings excellent people together. It brings people representing different views, confronting views. And we had some very interesting moments here. I would highlight the presentation of Chancellor Merkel and also the internal confrontation among the participants from the United States. So the Joe Biden's presentation, for example, was also remarkable. And in general, it is a very good reflection of the state of global affairs. And obviously, everybody is worried. And this is clearly seen by the presentation of the partners. You mentioned Joe Biden's presentation,
2: which contrasted very sharply, obviously, with what Vice President Pence had to say. He was very aggressive in the view of many participants coming out and saying that, you know, many NATO partners needed to do more. It seemed a bit more confrontational than I think some people anticipated, especially on issues such as Iran, he mentioned the Holocaust and warned that Iran might be planning a Holocaust against Israel and so forth. And I think it sort of shocked a lot of people in the room just how dark the tone of that speech was. And despite, as you say, there's this divide in the American delegation with Biden and the Democrats clearly taking a different view. It's also clear that it is the Trump administration that is in control of American foreign policy at the moment and you know, despite what Merkel said about multilateralism and so forth, the assumption is, is that she's going to be gone before too long. Where does this all leave the transatlantic relationship at the moment in your view? And you, I should add, just met Secretary Pompeo a couple of days in Bratislava, and the US is a crucial partner for Slovakia as well. So how do you see the transatlantic relationship at the moment in the Trump administration, which is going to be around for some time?
4: Well, this is definitely a new era in our transatlantic relationship. This is not what we um, are used to. This is not a partnership that is based on values. It's clearly more about interests. It's clearly more about transactions. And it's clearly more about deals, bilateral deals, rather than agreements and, and multilateral frameworks. And whether you like it or not, the one thing is clear. The U.S. administration makes no secret of what their philosophy is. And President Trump's speech at the General Assembly last September and Secretary Pompeo's speech in Brussels last December outlined very clearly the new philosophy of the U.S. foreign policy. What I'm missing here is the comprehensive reaction from the European Union. Because somehow we still pretend that this is not happening or are trying to explain to ourselves that what the U.S. is doing is not good for the U.S. I think it's already past the time when we should have I mean, accepted this as a new reality and agreed on how are we going to handle this because I'm really afraid that in the end we can end up with the European Union being the biggest loser of this new geopolitical reality because if we will be divided, if there is a EU position which is not identical with the US position and there is a growing number of issues where we differ, let's take the G- Iran and JCPOA as the most prominent example. And if some of the EU member states will take sides with the U.S., while some others will be defending EU position, in the end, EU will be irrelevant. So uh, for me, it's not about whether we like it or not. Obviously, we are strong supporters of multilateralism. We really believe that uh, the multilateral framework was not created for nothing. It was really created to make sure that we all respect the same set of rules and we avoid a catastrophe in the future. So now... We are being told that to respect the rules, universal rules is not the best way forward. The better way forward is to close bilateral deals. But again, I'm missing our European response to it.
2: What do people like Secretary Pompeo say to these arguments when you and other Europeans bring them? Because there doesn't really seem to be any recognition of the validity of the European argument on this front. And come back to Iran, I would also ask what is the real end game do you think for the europeans in confronting the us over the jcpoa what principle really is at stake here for europe
4: well the us side brings a very logical argument saying yes look where have we got with this multilateral system look there are so many blockages and there is so little progress on so many files so for them this is a justification to look for other ways other than multilateral approach to issues but I would say the risk is that then we create different principles for different cases and and different situations. And in the end, this will really create a mess. And plus, then other players will be tempted to do the same in their neighborhood, in their region. So uh, European Union stands up for multilateralism, but we should also go beyond rhetorics, beyond words, and we shall be able to prove it. And for me, this new situation is also an opportunity for the European Union to get more mature, I would say, more emancipated, which is not against the United States, but to standing up for our values, for our principles, for our philosophy cannot be seen as an hostile act against anyone. I mean, U.S. knows what their interests are, Russia knows exactly what their interests are, China knows exactly what their interests are, so you're, it's only logical that the European Union would also define what the interests are, what the values, what the principles are. And I really hope that the JCPOA will be a good example that we will stay united till the very end, and our political line will also be supported by our economic activities.
2: But on other issues, the European Union is quite divided. If you look at the North Stream issue, for example, on other foreign policy crises such as Venezuela, it's been difficult to get consensus over that. There are disagreements on Saudi Arabia, if you look at the position of France and Germany there. How realistic is it to expect that the European Union, given that it has not over the years developed a real common foreign policy, is going to be able to stand up to the United States and say, you know, we are acting as one here and this is our agenda and we're not backing down?
4: It is a well-known truth that every time European Union is unable to agree on a common position, we don't exist. as a global player. We are irrelevant. So, therefore, it should be in our interest to have a common position. And if we want to have a common position, we have to make sure that every member's views should be taken on board. This is the only way how everyone can defend and promote that common European position. So if we try to impose views of a group of European countries over the views of other group of European countries, this will never work. We should be listening to each other, but obviously it also expects everyone to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. It also expects that every European member states will we constructively engaging in these debates with the aim to find a solution and not to prevent a common European position, because unfortunately, this is also happening recently. Could you expand on that a little
2: bit? Because the reason that you come from uh, Central Europe, you're obviously part of the Visegrad Four group. You're now chairing that group, which also includes Hungary and the Czech Republic and Poland, of course. But there's been a lot of concern about the rule of law issues in Poland and Hungary, the political developments, especially in Hungary, with urbanism really taking very deep root there, that this region in particular could be moving away from the European consensus how do you think that can be halted or reversed,
4: really? Well, the irony of the European integration today is that we have never been more integrated as we are today, but at the same time, we have never been more divided as we are today. And we are unfortunately the old stereotypes about the West and East and about all the new member states have come to the surface again, which is very unfortunate. And this is as a consequence of a catastrophic handling of the migration issue by the European Union in 2015 that really divided the member states, and also put a significant part of uh, European population against European institutions. Now, to say that Central Europe or the new member states are a problem for the European Union is superficial, and it's obviously a simplification, because unfortunately we have anti-systemic parties in many European countries, in several European governments. So let's separate these issues. If there are questions about the rule of law in Poland, deal it as a separate issue if there are and there are uh, questions related to the system in Hungary there are European procedures and let's put them in action but this should not be a reason to I mean describe the entire region as a black hole creating the impression as if again things are black and white So we need more understanding we need more dialogue among us among the Europeans to sort out our problems without judging Each other, you know, without lecturing each other. Because we are all bringing our own background, our own history, our own experience and know how. And this should be seen as something that is here to strengthen the European Union.
0: Because of the jam packed Munich content, we don't have a panel for you this week. But if you're hungry for more EU confidential, don't forget the special episode we published earlier this week featuring the UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. We talk about what the global Britain brand really means in practice and, of course, Brexit. Thanks so much for listening to our Munich episode. A big thanks to the EU Confidential team of Andrew Gray, Christina Gonzalez and Wei Dong Lin.